Uh, Chase is going to teach us now in our, we are in, I think, the 12th or so uh, message in the Sermon on the Mount. Chase, you might know because you've actually binged them all right up to this moment. Yeah, okay. Um, Chase, listen to all of them to get caught up so we can teach you guys faithfully. I appreciate that a lot. We'll be in Matthew 6. And um, um, just a reminder for those who've been um, with us, uh, Jesus has been laying out this vision for how to become people who begin to grow in his nature, not just doing good things, but becoming goodness itself. And this is now the part where he just told us you must be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. We looked at that last week. So now we get to the part where he sets, now that he's told us the high standard, he's going to give us ways to grow into this. How do we become the things he's asking us to become? He gives us some simple practices. These are what you, if you will, these are the original three spiritual disciplines. Giving, prayer, and fasting. And we're going to cover the first one tonight. So Chase will be covering Matthew 6, 1 through 4 on giving. So. I don't even need to preach. Brandon already did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're not in your Bibles, turn to Matthew 6. Um, we're going to be diving into the Word together, which I love doing. Now, uh, if you don't know me, which... There's a handful of you here who I don't know. Uh, my name is Chase. I was a student at the Bible College for the last two years, uh, the last year here at Twin Peaks, and I am now full-time staff in the kitchen, uh, living on campus, um, and I did everything I could to move to the mountain uh, because I love what God's doing here, and so I'm I'm here for the, for the foreseeable future. So uh, I'm not based on semesters. I'm stuff. So I'm here. And uh, I'll also have the joy of interning at a local church in Running Springs and coming here. So I'm glad to be back. I was gone away for the summer interning uh, as in church planting, learning so much. Uh, and it was it was a great summer. And so now I'm back. I missed you all. And uh, let's talk after service. Ask me about my internship and we can chop it up. Uh, but for today... As we're in Matthew 6, I'm going to tell you one story from my internship that I think will help set the tone for the rest of our time together. Two days, two days before the end of my internship, I had the opportunity to serve in an event where they gave out hundreds of backpacks and school supplies to students who were in need. When I say students, I mean anyone from 3-year-old to 18-year-old. So hundreds of people came, families from the local area, uh, over 20 churches were represented here, and uh, it was a big event. And as they traveled through this entire, like, field of different things, food provided, games, things like that, uh, one of the places they came to was the backpack book booth where they got their backpacks. Um, before they would get their backpack, they would have to sit, oh, we would ask them to sit down for a gospel presentation to hear the gospel. And so there were just a ton of tables, and then there were a ton of volunteers that helped and were kind of trained on how to share the gospel in short form and bring that before them. And so I had the opportunity to volunteer at this booth. Now, mind you, I have never formally shared the gospel with anybody that I didn't know. Uh, so this was a great learning curve for me because I went in knowing the logistics of how to do it, but needing to put it into practice. And it was a very good time. I learned a lot. There were moments where I would share the gospel with someone and they're very uninterested in hearing it and they just want their backpack and get out of there. 
then there were other people where I didn't even have to tell them because they were telling me what Jesus meant to them. And so I was encouraged by it. And uh, the last set of people I talked to were two young high schoolers that were coming from out of town. And interesting, they were just visiting out of town and they came to this event to get some back supplies. High schoolers, about my younger brother's age, interestingly enough. So I sat them down and I just said like, tell me your story. Why are you here? And I started just talking to them, trying to gauge where they're at with the gospel. And when I asked them, well, do you know Jesus? Their answer was like, I'm familiar with him. And I said, well, you know the gospel. And they just gave me blank stares. They had no idea what I was talking about. I said, like, the good news of the Bible? No clue. Dead silent. I was like, well, let me tell you. That's why you're here. So I started telling them that. And eventually, like, I started asking some questions because I'm trying to learn where are they at. And a question that became relevant was, do you think you're going to heaven? And both of them said shocking answers. First one said, hopefully. The second one said, probably not. And I think it's in many ways it's because they were rooted in the idea of my works aren't good enough to get me there. And now, mind you, I'm sitting there internally shocked, blown away that that was their answers. I am covered in the blood of Jesus, secure of my eternity forever and ever. And there are not a lot of hills I would die on, but my assurance of my salvation is one of them. I know where I'm going when I die. And so, naturally, uh, I shared this good news with them uh, because it's good news for me and it can be good news for them. I said, did you guys know that you can be sure of your salvation today? Uh, and they're like, no, tell me more. I'm like, that, again, that's why you're here. So I tell them, and in God's goodness, both of these guys gave their lives to Jesus right there. Uh, and I was very quickly humbled because I had no idea what I was doing, but God did. He was leading all of it. And then I realized another thing. How do we go from here? Cool. Now you're saved. Now you're born again. Now what? And I think so often there's so much, uh, like, baggage behind you're only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and works do not save you. So stop talking about works. And there's a lot of misunderstanding behind that. And so I needed to convey to them uh, that their lives going forward were to look different. They were to uh, no longer live for themselves, but instead look live for Christ. And naturally, that's going to look different. So you see, we live in this tension of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But our works in our lives are supposed to be evidence of that salvation within us. Where we point the world around us to the God above us. And because of this, a shift must happen in our lives from living to please ourselves to living to please Him. God. And as Brandon said, we've been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We learned about the Beatitudes and how they're an ascending ladder, showing us what the good life is all about. And we've been learning a lot about following Jesus and what that looks like. And so now, Jesus, after making a high call for perfection, which Brandon taught on last week, and if you haven't heard it, go listen to it. Jesus makes a shift, uh, I believe, from chapter 5 where he's talking about the law of God and how to approach that rightly to now relationship with God 
what it looks like in the details on daily life. Now, it's all about relationship with God. The entire Bible is about relationship with God, but I think he's speaking of specific spiritual disciplines and how we are to approach them, as Brendan said. In fact, so much so that I believe Jesus is getting into in this next section the three most important practices for our lives. Not just for the Jewish context Jesus was in at the time, but even for today, I believe that these practices are the three most important for the Christian life. Giving, praying, and fasting. And yes, I said fasting. I can't remember the last time I did that. But we have a lot of growing to do in the way of Jesus. And praise God for grace, because growth is a journey, and he's with us through it. And why I think they're important is not just because he brings them up here, it's because of a thing called the eight passions. And uh, if you've been here for any length of time, Brendan brings them up all the time. Uh, if you don't know what the eight passions are, they are, they are the original version of the seven deadly sins. So if you've heard of that, great. Uh, and the first three of the eight passions are gluttony, vainglory, and greed. So easy way to remember is they're all G's. Gluttony, glory, greed. And what I think Jesus is doing in the section we're going into is that he's actually walking through those first three in backwards order to get to the root of our hearts. Uh, he's working his way deeper into our heart to the root of unrighteousness within us, to the root of why our relationship with him is not flourishing as it should. Like I said, life is a journey and there's a lot of growth ahead of us. And so today... I have the joy of talking about the first practice, giving. Uh, but also, I want to talk about God's heart and his reasoning for all this, because we're going to see a whole lot of, in this entire section, do this in secret. Don't tell anybody. Well, Jesus, last I checked, you had just said, let your light shine before men. Why in the world are you telling us to do this in secret? What's going on here? So that's what I hope to talk about in time. So if you're in Matthew 6, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Matthew 6, verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, when you give to the poor... Do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God, we thank you for your word. And we ask that in this time you would speak, that I would fade into the background, and that you would lead, God. We are here for you. We want, want your spirit to move. Convict our hearts of the areas of our lives where we need to give more of ourselves to you, God. Here we are. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you're taking notes, my sermon title is Living to Please Him. Living to please him. If you're not taking notes, I encourage you to take notes because I forget and I imagine you're like me. Uh, living to please him. And in verse 1, I, I, again I say that J, 
I believe Jesus is transitioning into a new portion of his sermon. And he's doing it with the word beware. Very strong word. You ever seen the sign on a person's house, beware of the dog? And then you see the dog and it's chihuahua that's just yipping all the time. But more scared of you than you are of it. Now, Jesus is talking about something way bigger than that. Well, we have to bring up chapter 5 again. It says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not your abilities, not your talents, not your work, not your possessions. Only glorify your God and that God should become their God who becomes our God. Jesus is getting at something deeper within us, where our motives are at, when it comes to how we live out the righteousness of God. He says, don't do this to be noticed by others. Beware. And I think in this, he's asking us an underlying question. And it's not that, are you trying to please others? It's actually that, are you trying to please yourself? by gratifying your flesh, by the attention of others. And I feel good when people look at me and see me and give me praise. And all of a sudden, it's becoming about us. I'm trying to please myself to make myself feel good. Jesus is trying to get at this, that you will either serve yourself or you will serve him. There's no middle ground. And I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones addresses this head on in his commentary on this passage. He says, we should realize that our supreme object in life should be to please God, to please him only, and to please him always and in everything. If that is our aim, we cannot go wrong. Our highest goal in becoming someone who embodies the good life should be in everything we do that we want nothing more than to please him alone. The praise of man cannot mean anything of glory to us. Because we may be able to hide our motives from man, from man, but cannot hide it from God because he sees all of it. That's why Jesus says, you will have no reward with your father who is in heaven. I think what he's saying here is that you are decimating your relationship with me by trying to gain the attention of others, to gain their approval and living to please yourself. You're doing it all wrong. So naturally, there's a follow-up question. Cool, this is the thesis of the entire next section. This is what Jesus is getting at here. Why in the world does he begin with money and possessions? Well, The rest of the Bible was here for us to understand it. So in Luke chapter 16, I think there's the answer. Uh, Luke chapter 16, we have some Pharisees. And Jesus is teaching, funny enough, actually something that also comes up in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 24 is the same exact verse. Uh, Luke 16, 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, the Pharisees, who were, catch this, lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, 
but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You see, there is a connection between loving money and squandering your relationship with God. Because money may make the world go around, but it doesn't move God's heart. Money may get you places, but it won't get you into God's good graces. <laughs> money may get you places, but it won't get you into God's good graces. It's very important that we recognize this. Do you want to move God's heart? Then live with open hands, giving all you have, willing as a sacrifice of worship to him, and do it just because you want to feel him smile. Not because you want attention, not because you want it back tenfold. Come on now. And God, I'll give it to you. Just make that return big. Because I'm sacrificing right now, Lord. No. We must be willing to lose everything and not get it back until we die for the sake of the kingdom. Otherwise, we have work to do in our heart. I want to talk about Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come and dine with him. So Jesus goes and he's reclining at the table. And a sinful woman in the city hears that Jesus is there. And she goes and she brings an alabaster jar of perfume, which is worth a ton of money. Uh, I've heard year's wages. That's been thrown around for a bit. So I think your entire salary for a year. Um, She goes to Jesus' feet, weeping, wetting uh, wetting his feet with her tears. And she's wiping his feet with her hair, kissing his feet, and anointing them with this perfume. She opened it up. She's worshiping him right in the Pharisee's house. And you would think, oh, that's so awesome. You're you're really setting a good example of worshiping our Lord. So beautiful. That's not what the Pharisee thought. He was actually very unhappy. Uh, And he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus doesn't put up with it. He responds, Simon, I have something to say to you. That's literally what my translation says. Uh, and he replied, say it, teacher. Jesus goes, a money lender had two debtors. So, of course, there's a parable. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon responds and says, I guess the one who is forgiven more. Jesus responds, you're right. And then he turns to the woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he says to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. This woman comes in with something worth tons of money, which, by the way, frustrates Judas in another story, and pours it on the dirtiest part of Jesus, his feet. 
I see that she's essentially saying the highest part of me, all that I have is worth even the lowest part of you, Jesus. I may be detestable in the sight of this world, but oh, to be received by you, Jesus. I just want to please you, not anyone else, because I can't. I don't even want to try to please myself. I just want to worship you. Those that know that pleasing themselves is sin come to Christ in desperation, looking to know and be known by him, begging for the blood that covers them entirely and giving away everything because he's better than anything this world has to offer. So, church, is he your greatest reward? Or do you value the world's currency more? Is he your greatest reward, or do you value the world's currency more? Meaning what they say is worthy of our attention and affections, money, possessions, happiness, pleasure, stuff, things, products, you name it. Is Jesus everything to you? Because Jesus will either be everything or nothing, but he surely cannot be only something. And if he is everything to you, are you living like it? Are your finances living like it? Is your schedule living like it? No, not. I go to church every week, though that does matter. But it's, are you daily living, uh, daily dying to yourself for the sake of the gospel, willing to do whatever it takes to see the world transformed inside and out for the kingdom of heaven? To see the world's currency change from pleasing self to pleasing him. Is he your great reward? If so, are you living like that? Are you living to please him? Verse 2. So when you give to the poor, not if... When you give to the poor, giving is assumed in the Christian life, period. That word's there for a reason. It's not if you choose to give to the poor, it's when you give to the poor. Giving is assumed in the Christian life. We ought to be saying, because Jesus is everything to me, this stuff is all worth nothing to me, but since this is all it means to an end, I'm going to make that end Jesus in all that I do, in all that I spend, however I live my life. So, for example, do you tithe? Tithe literally means tenth. So, is 10% your ceiling or your floor? Are you saying, mm, I'm not going to give any more than that. Like, I, I'm going to start at 5% and we'll get to 10%, but then we're going to stop there. That's all that God's getting from me. Or make it our floor and say, God, this is where I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin with obedience and then I'm going to just try to excel in that area. Now, I don't care if you're a student in the room and you don't have an income. I mean that lovingly. If you're spending money on anything at all, then you have possessions that God is worthy of receiving a portion of, and the Bible calls that portion 10%. So church, what if we didn't hold anything back from God, but instead said yes to obedience, giving freely of all of ourselves, knowing that he is our provider and he's the one who holds the storehouses of heaven in his righteous right hand. And also, listen, in my experience, 
when we entrust God with our first fruits, he takes that 90% and he makes it enough, more than enough, every single time. And yes, I have been like right on the edge before. And God provided every single time when I said yes to obeying him. And why do I believe this? Verse 33 of this chapter. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, do you trust God with your stuff? All of it. In each of these practices Jesus is going to go through, he iterates that those that seek to please themselves are never going to actually please themselves. And they're never going to be honored by God either. Jesus said, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. He's going to repeat that exact same phrase three times. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 16. They have their reward in full, those that live for themselves. That's it. The reason why I think he's saying this is because God does not tolerate dual allegiance. I would rather you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. Jesus said this to a church in the book of Revelation. I would rather you are hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you're wishy-washy, I'm going to spit you out. I would ball my eyes out to hear that from the Lord. And so we have to ask then, what does singular allegiance to Jesus look like? If that's dual allegiance, okay, what does singular allegiance look like? Well, verse 3. But when you give to the poor... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is now painting for us the right way to do this. It's twofold. One, as we just saw, don't announce it to others to get their approval. But two, don't announce it to yourself to get your acquittal, meaning to justify yourself. Man, look at me. I'm doing a good deed. I'm so awesome. Now, no one ever talks like that, but that's what we're doing in our hearts so often. I'm, I'm serving the Lord. Everything's going great. Man, look at me. I'm so cool. God doesn't give a rip about your good deed. Because you did it for yourself rather than for him. It's a hard thing to hear. I need to hear it. God does not care. Our fleshly deeds are filthy rags before him when we do it for ourselves. Don't announce it to others to get their approval. Don't announce it to yourself to get your acquittal. To justify yourself. Because God doesn't give a rip about that. He wants your heart. If you desire to please God, then heed this. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? The most important thing about him. So then, how do we shape our motives around Christ and not our flesh, not ourselves? How do we shift that gear? Because cool, awesome, you got saved, but you have all these horrible habits of living for yourself. And that's going to take a lifetime to change. Where do we begin? Thank you, Jesus, 
That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's all right there. Give in secret. Practice not letting people know that you're giving. And do it just to please the Father. You see, because this is all about intimacy with God. When we give in secret, the Father is pleased. And he rewards us for our worship of him alone. What does he worship, uh, reward us with? Well, I believe first he rewards us with more of himself. Look at the Psalms. The more that they lost for God, the more of God they got. Psalms 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When God becomes everything to you, you begin to see him in everything. In your pursuit of a spouse, of healthy finances, of a peaceful life, of purpose, fulfillment, happiness, you begin to see God in everything. Why? Because you made him your everything. Therefore, you're getting all that you could ever want, and it's more of him. It's all about Jesus, not about us. And so I ask, what are you doing? Are you clinging to your stuff? It's a real question. Jesus brings it up here in the Sermon on the Mount. Give to the poor or the needy in other translations. There's a lot of people in need. Sure, we may need our, the income we get every month. But God calls us to give anyway, trusting that he will provide. So, what are you doing? Are you clinging to your stuff or do you want more of him? Because you don't have room for both. Is he your greatest reward? And if so, are you living to please him? Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that includes your finances, your possessions, and your endeavors in this life. This is where the gospel starts, and this is where it ends. You can't save yourself. You can't preserve yourself. You can't please yourself. So why live for yourself and build a kingdom that won't last but will perish? Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. If you are here in this room, and you have not put your faith in God, and I mean given your life to follow him forever, aka, if you're not saved, make today that day. Give your life to him. Not just, not just your finances, all of you. And, or if you're, you're also, if you're here, you're following Jesus, but you realize that you may not have, you're not having faith to believe that God will provide and give you a happy life at the same time, then it's time to repent. Because you cannot serve God and wealth. And so we, as the people of God, need to be saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and that includes our bank accounts. That includes our garages. That includes our property. That includes anything we own that we call ours. So which have you been pleasing? God or yourself? Let's pray.